Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Margarita Balmaseda, author of Russian Energy Chains The Remaking of Technopolitics from Siberia to Ukraine to the European Union. The book was published by Columbia University Press in 2021. Margarita Balmasede is a professor of diplomacy and international relations at Seton Hall University. She's also an associate at Harvard University's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. Her books include The Politics of Energy Dependency, Ukraine, Belarus, and Lithuania Between Domestic Oligarchs and Russian Pressure, and Living uh, the High Life in Minsk, uh, Russian Energy Rents, Domestic Populism, and Belarus Impending Crisis, Energy Dependency, Politics, and Corruption in the Former Soviet Union. Capitalizing on her Ukrainian, Russian, Hungarian, and German skills, in addition to her native Spanish, uh, Margarita Balmaseda uh, has conducted extensive research in Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, Lithuania, Moldova, Hungary, Germany, and Finland. A specialist on the comp- uh, comparative energy politics of the post-Soviet uh, states, since 2000 she has been following the pipeline uh, that is following the complex web of interconnections that accompany the energy relationship between Russian oil and gas producers, post-Soviet transit states, and European consumers. Hello, Margarita. Hello, Natalia. Nice, uh, nice to be here. Uh, so congratulations on your uh, new book. And I hope today we'll uh, have a chance uh, to talk about the uh, Nord Stream uh, 2 pipeline, uh, which uh, has uh, received a lot of attention both in Europe and uh, in the States. So, but first, I would like to um, uh, talk a little bit about the introductory part of your book. So, uh, in the introduction, you explain how the notions of power and energy resources are understood. Uh, these also appear crucial for the uh, subsequent discussion. Depending on how we understand power and energy resources, we uh, construct the way we approach these issues, which are connected with uh, these notions. So, uh, what is power and what energy resources are discussed in your book? Well, that's, that's a very good way to start a conversation, um, because um, some of the things that have propelled me to to work exactly on this book have been my uh, lack of confidence or dissatisfaction with the way the concept of power has been used, in particular in dealing with energy, but also the way in which the concept of energy resources has been used. And to to put this in a nutshell, very often uh, the literature on energy and politics talks about energy power as exclusively external power. In the book, I call this power over. Um, Underestimating that energy and control over energy resources can also create very important preconditions for domestic power and for empowering certain domestic actors 
um, in a nutshell, I call this power two. And I think this is important because the way we have traditionally looked at energy and power has been simply in terms of external power, especially when we're talking about the Russian relationship with, with countries like Ukraine and neglecting the domestic element um, is a problem. The, the other side of the question about the energy resources that are included in this book or not included, um, that is also important because of two issues. First of all, traditionally, we have in, in the West basically focused all our attention on, on oil. But even worse than that, we have kind of subsumed every other type of energy under oil and assumed that everything works as oil. And I remember even discussions in the 2006 uh, Ukrainian-Russian energy crisis, 2009 Russian-Ukrainian energy crisis, experts or supposed experts on energy here in the U.S. were mistakenly confusing natural gas and oil. I don't think that happens anymore, but um, one of the goals of this book is to show how different these different types of energy are. And since I didn't have um, unlimited amounts of time, I limited myself to three types of energy. Um, I focused on, on natural gas, on oil, but also on coal, um, which is a type of energy that is very, very seldom discussed. And um, I made a point of, of discussing that in this book. Of course, there are other types of energy. There, I, have, I didn't have the time to get into nuclear mm. power, for example, or into renewables. But these three types of energy um, I'll focus on because they are the key three types of energy that Russia is exporting, not only to Ukraine, but to European Union. Um, Russia's, the, for example, the European Union's supply of both oil, natural gas, and coal are about 35% coming from Russia, each of them. So, uh, in a sense, you can talk about them um, as, as a group, mm -hmm. besides the fact that they are fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned that you were dissatisfied, right, with how power was understood. So um, I would like you to uh, follow up on this um, um, line and uh, ask you, uh, how does your book intervene with how Russian energy supplies are understood in existing body of literature? The existing literature, and maybe here I'm painting, painting a large field with a broad brush, um, focuses on Russia's using energy as an element of external power, as an element of pressure. I have no doubt that Russia has done that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, there is no doubt that Russia has done that or continues to do that. But what is missing from that discussion is how do domestic players in other states that are not Russia, in Russia but also in this other state, play a role here. Um, we, we do not have simply a situation of bad Russia or bad Russian oligarchs in cahoots or in coordination with Putin oppressing Ukraine. We have a situation where for many, many years, domestic Ukrainian players also played a role in maintaining a situation of dependency. And even today, we see a situation where domestic European Union players are very happy to collaborate with, with Russian energy mm -hmm. um, players. And even within Russia, we cannot simply talk about one single energy power. We know, for example, and 
just doing very directly touch upon Nord Stream 2, that many of those large infrastructure programs supported by the Russian state are first and foremost supporting the enrichment of Putin's friends who are involved in the building of this, those other players. Not to say that Russia does not use energy as a weapon, but to clarify how this happens and the key role of domestic players, of some domestic players at least, even more. Um, for example, if, if Russia's energy power had simply been a matter of external power, it really would not have been able to be so powerful. It would not have been able to penetrate so deeply as it did. And therefore, even if I am saying you cannot simply see energy relations in terms of a Russian external power, looking at domestic players actually helps you better understand that energy power. So that, that was the idea I was, mm -hmm. I was trying to, to present. Mm -hmm. uh, and, well, as you mentioned, uh, <clears throat> you um, uh, chose uh, to um, focus on three types of energy, and uh, there is some certain time period that your book specifies as well. Uh, would you uh, talk a little bit uh, about uh, what time period you focus on and why? Yes. So, I mean, if you look at this book, it, it goes back and forth in time. Um, sometimes it even goes back to the end of the 19th century when um, steel focused coal production started in Ukraine, for example, or it brings us to the present with the discussion of Nord Stream. But since I had a lot of moving parts since, and I wanted to compare these three types of energy, natural gas, oil, and coal, I wanted to have as much as possible a stable um, focus period to, to base the kind of hardcore analysis on. And in this book, this period is from, I believe, October 2011 to the end of April, early May 2014. Um, why? Well, this is a very good period because it's a period where there is some kind of stability in world mm -hmm. energy markets, in particular natural gas and oil. It's a period of relative price stability. And this is good because if I had, if I had taken a period where you have huge swings in prices that complicates things so much, um, this is a period of relatively high prices of uh, natural gas and, and in particular oil. Um, and this is also um, in terms of rules and regulations, um, a stable period, if you remember some of the discussions about Russian export duties, export regulations, by, by 2011, Russia had started a particular system of export duties on oil. That's not the most important thing in the book, but it's one example of how during that period we have kind of equal conditions or stable conditions. Um, and that, that was important because I didn't want to have a period with a lot of changes. And of course, that period is tremendously telling and important because it is, I call it, the period of calm before the storm. Before the storm, of course, not only of the um, huge um, fall in, in oil prices in 2014, but the storm of the Russian intervention in Ukraine.
And that's why I take that as a kind of basis, basis period for kind of my hard numbers and my calculations. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, you make uh, an intriguing observation. Uh, the uh, countries which are believed to be hostage of the Russian gas pipe pipeline, in fact, are also using the situation for their benefits and advantages. Uh, doesn't mean that they are not really interested in reducing this dependency on the Russian gas and oil supplies. Well, that is a very, very, very complex, and um, one would even say very politically delicate issue. Um, if you would ask any political official in Ukraine, even during the Kuchma period, which was strife with corruption, I hold, I hold, I wrote an entire book about this, uh, they would say that, yes, they would want to diversify, but they didn't do anything about it. Um, if you take the period after 2014, they have been attempts at diversification, real attempts at diversification, but at the same time, there has been and continues to be a desire to continue to play an important role in those Russian energy chains, if only because of the income that Ukraine has received from those exports. And to understand the importance of this, and again, this is something that may come to bear if we start talking about Nord Stream later on, uh, to understand the importance of this, we need to understand that basically the entire natural gas supply infrastructure in Ukraine, but also in Slovakia, in other Eastern European countries, emerged as part and parcel, not even as a byproduct, but as part and parcel of the tremendous expansion of Soviet natural gas exports in the 1970s. So this is not simply something that Ukraine could, Ukraine or Slovakia could, could switch on and off. This, this role in the transit of those fossil fuels, in particular natural gas, is essential for the functioning of the entire system. It was also essential for income, yes, in terms of transit income, it was essential for many years for Ukraine to uh, mine, maintain um, quote-unquote low natural gas prices mm. uh, between 1994 to 1991 and, nine, and 2004. Ukraine did not get paid separately for transit services, but everything was kind of combined in a low import price. So uh, it, it benefited in many ways oligarchs benefited tremendously, especially until 2014. Um, So I do not want to say that they did not want to diversify, but this has been a very, very long process. And if you go a little bit back in history, and this is something I discuss a lot in my 2008 book on energy dependency, politics, and corruption, if you go to the early post-Soviet period, 1991, Ukrainian policymakers and Ukrainian industrialists, uh, the directors of very large companies, they refused to see Ukraine as an energy-dependent state because they still saw Ukraine within the context of that larger Soviet supply, even when Ukraine was no longer part of the Soviet Union, that larger supply system. So, yes, Ukraine benefited. Um, that has 
touched every aspect of Ukraine's development in the last 40 years, not only the last 30 years of independence, but even before. But I want to emphasize the Soviet Union benefited tremendously from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. If you read the chapter on natural gas, you may remember that Ukraine, Ukrainian territory, provided huge services in terms of storage facilities for that Soviet gas to be parked before sending it during the winter months to Europe in terms of um, supplies, actually, in the 1960s when Ukraine was still very active in terms of uh, natural gas production. But most importantly, and here is uh, a place where the technical aspect of the book is really important, Ukraine provided very important services in terms of the management of natural gas pressure. And if you remember the title of the chapter on gas, of natural gas, it's managing pressure. Natural gas needs to be under certain types of pressure for it to stay in place, for it not to dissipate, for it to move, for it not to kill you, <laughs> like if there is an explosion. And if you want to export it, you need to have all these aspects of the pressure very clearly under control. And Ukraine, the infrastructure available in Ukraine, the natural gas storage facilities in Ukraine played a huge role there. Of course, at that time, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. Okay. Um, but I simply want to emphasize that um, it was a system where both sides provided something. It was not simply Orenburg or Yamal providing natural gas. It was also Ukraine providing very important services for those exports, which in turn came to really shape the whole Ukrainian energy, uh, natural gas supplies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so when we uh, speak about Ukraine as a part of uh, the Soviet Union, it's quite clear uh, why Ukraine um, was this important um, point uh, in the Soviet uh, supply system. But uh, as you pointed out, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, some um, Ukrainian uh, politicians probably were not ready for changes, or they resisted some changes, or, well, since we had Different, uh, different opinions, right, on the um, future development of Ukraine after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And um, on the other hand, I understand that uh, thinking about our past in terms of we should have done this probably is not very productive, but still. Um, do you believe that something could have been done back in the 90s to uh, reduce uh, Ukraine's um, participation in this uh, um, huge um, system, supply system, which uh, actually... Uh, centers uh, in Russia, uh, so that this dependency on um, supplies was a little bit uh, elim- uh, was a little bit eliminated. Um, yes, um, a couple of a couple of things uh, could have been done. Um, first of all, the way subsidies worked in the early 1990s really made it very unlikely that anybody in Ukraine would have wanted to engage in any measures to increase energy efficiency, because in particular, natural gas was very heavily subsidized, not only for residential consumers, which continued to be subsidized uh, for many, many, many more years, but for industries. And those industrial leaders, those so-called red red directors of the time, and later oligarchs uh, that, that bought those 
companies and those very directors that, that purchased those companies, they had no interest in saving energy. So there was, there was no incentive in doing this. And the effect of this was continuing a particular way of doing business with Russia, a particular way of organizing energy trade that in the, in the final analysis could not be good for Ukraine because it maintained Ukraine as a country with some of the highest energy intensities in the world. And it did not create any incentives for energy efficiency. And this is very clear in the case of natural gas, where all that web of subsidies continued for very, very long. In the case of oil, it was a little bit different because the subsidies were gone earlier, but the way the system was organized domestically in terms of the power of certain actors and the lack of transparency, it created a lot of problems for Ukraine later on. If you remember from the oil chapter, we come to see that all of the sudden between 2005 and 2014, basically every single Ukrainian refinery goes out of business in large part because of the way um, certain actors have been allowed to act, to, to function in a way that created short-term profits but, but long-term problems for the country. So your question was, what could have been done differently? Um, I think reducing subsidies would have been very important and creating real incentives for energy efficiency. But I want to introduce here the third type of energy, coal. Um, and it's a little bit of a separate discussion because, as you know, the way that chapter is built is really the coal steel uh, value chain, so it's a little bit different. But what we saw is that in the early 1990s, every other country in Eastern Europe, or almost every other country in Eastern Europe, including Russia, was trying to reform the coal sector. Everybody was thinking about coal. Even Russia managed to reform its coal sector and at a high social cost, for sure, managed to close many, many unviable mines. In Ukraine, politicians were also thinking about the coal sector, but they were thinking about the coal sector in a different way. They were thinking, how can we keep it alive? How can we keep people employed? And this is a little bit of a somewhat different answer to your question because it's not really an issue here of whether Ukraine was dependent on Russian coal. It was about the political dynamics mm. that were made possible by that continued subsidization of the mines um, and of the mines and, and of all the business around it. So this was, this was a very clear policy mistake and we are seeing the effects even today with what is happening in, in the, the Donetsk, Donbass area. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I can but ask you uh, about uh, Nord Stream uh, 2. Uh, and uh, when I received uh, your book, I was still thinking in terms, if 
it starts operating. <laughs> now probably we change this formulation to when it starts operating. So what are the consequences for Ukraine in your opinion? And um, it, today uh, we have, particularly in Ukraine, some drastic opinions on this uh, recent agreement which was signed by the states and uh, uh, Germany. Uh, some people say that Ukraine lost already. Some people say that we shouldn't be relying on the agreements like this and we sh uh, Ukrainians should rely more on their own resources and um, they should uh, we should try uh, find our own ways to somehow reestablish ourselves um, not only domestically but internationally as well so um, uh, I'm really interested in your commentary on the current situation um, so I think one thing does not exclude the other um, I think Ukraine needs to be more self-reliant we can talk more about in more detail what that could entail. Um, Ukraine needs to be, and, and Ukraine will be, um, very cautious about what those agreements mean because we have already the experience of the agreements in the 1990s to quote unquote provide security guarantees to Ukraine in exchange for it relinquishing its nuclear weapons. Was that fully applied? I don't think so, because look at what happened. So I think those in Ukraine who are skeptical about those agreements, I can understand them. Um, what, what are the levels, at what levels is Nord Stream 2 going to impact Ukraine? Well, the first level is simply in terms of transit income, about $2 billion per year. Um, a second level, again, goes back to the technical discussion about natural gas pressure and how the nat natural gas systems work. If you reduce transit, you cannot really keep the system together. You can reduce transit a little bit, 30%, 40%, but if you reduce it 80%, you just, it doesn't, doesn't work because there's not enough pressure for natural gas to move. And we are already seeing this with the declining transit towards Moldova and Romania, which already uh, declined two years ago, and how that has really created tremendous problems for natural gas supplies to the southeastern parts of Ukraine. But most importantly, in my view, moving natural gas transit away from Ukraine basically leaves Ukraine outside of a certain political game. Mm. Until recently, Europe had an, somewhat of an interest in Ukraine because they needed Ukraine for the transit. When you had the 2006 suspension of natural gas supplies by Russia, when you had 2009 suspension of natural gas supplies by Russia, the European Union played a very, very important role in trying to solve the issue. Why? Because supplies to Western Europe were affected. Now, this triangulation is no longer there or will no longer be there. And that is going to be a real problem. But having said all this, I do not think that it was a good idea for Ukraine to continue to rely so much on natural gas transit because eventually the European Union is moving towards other energy sources. Mm -hmm. Fossil fuels are not going to be the key element. Mm -hmm. And sooner or later, that was not going to play the role 
that it played 10 years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So in a certain sense, this is forcing Ukraine to rethink its role in European, in the European energy infrastructure, in the ener European energy landscape. <laughs> Will it be able to do that? That's a question mark. Will there be sufficiently strong oligarchic interests, to speak openly, in Ukraine with those interests, with the interests of a Ukraine playing a totally different role in European energy? Um, I think a little bit will depend on what happens with the investment fund that was promised by, by Germany and the U.S., an investment fund of, I believe, about $1 billion um, intended to help Ukraine smoothen the impact of, of the loss of, of transit. Um, will that be enough? They have talked about $1 billion, but they have actually only committed 350 million, 175 Germany, 175 the US. Is that going to be enough? Um, I'm not sure, because we are talking here about the total rethinking of, of Ukraine's energy system. And it's going to be a tremendous challenge. So I think, uh, again, even the fact that Ukrainian oligarchs have been so prominent in the country's development, I think the answer may, may lie there. Will they find a way to make money out of this in a way that doesn't totally siphon all the investments out of, out of Ukraine? I think that, that the answer may lie there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, <clears throat> the energy sector in Ukraine is uh, also quite uh, contentious. Uh, and as you uh, pointed out, uh, your book um, uh, covers uh, a lot of, uh, in fact, a lot of historical points and a lot of uh, histor historical uh, errors. Uh, let's put it this way. It's not only 2011 and 2014. Um, you um, cover a lot of the Soviet legacy um, in Ukraine and then uh, also pre-2011 events as well, particularly in Ukraine. Um, uh, your uh, book uh, mentions the contracts and negotiations which took place between Russia and Ukraine 2009 and 2010. Uh, also, um, uh, you, um, uh, the book uh, touches upon that um, a period when uh, uh, Ukraine was uh, paying the highest price uh, for uh, some energy supplies uh, in Europe. Um, and uh, Timoshenko was imprisoned uh, to some extent because of uh, some um, deals, right, in this, uh, in this uh, sector. So how would, you, uh, how would you describe this time period in Ukraine when there was a lot of tension between Ukraine and uh, Russia in terms of energy supplies. Uh, and um, uh, interestingly in enough, uh, this uh, uh, tension was followed by the uh, uh, escalation which took place in 2014. Of course, these uh, events are not related probably uh, directly, but um, uh, nevertheless, um, what's your, uh, what's your um, um, uh, take on uh, these developments? Uh, in the uh, 2010s? Well, your, your question is a very rich one. It has different aspects. Um, so I, let me try to see some ways in which I can approach it. Um, so basically what we saw in 2000 uh, with, the, with the Timoshenko agreements was an attempt to get out of a crisis mm -hmm in the fastest way possible, but of course at a very, very high cost for Ukraine because those agreements, although they had some very 
good things like the separation of transit and supplies, which had never happened before, uh, like the movement towards some kind of international ties. But once you look at the, at the small print, these agreements meant that the basis price on which then everything was calculated was extremely high. And on the one hand, this had a positive effect in terms of already giving Ukrainian economic players a signal that they needed to use energy, use natural gas more carefully. Mm -hmm. And if you start to see the data for Ukrainian natural gas consumption already starting there, it starts to go down. And that is important. Um, on the other hand, obviously the, the disbalance between, for example, transit income and what Ukraine had to pay for natural gas was gigantic. So this created uh, tremendous pressure, for example, on the budget and increased Ukraine's uh, foreign debt. And this was very, uh, very problematic. But one element I want to bring into this discussion, and, and I don't know to which point I'm answering your question or not, but I just want to bring it in. Um, when we look in hindsight, we look at the Yanukovych period and at Yanukovych as a cowardly pro-Russian little despot with a love for gold-plated toilets or, or whatever he had in his, in his mansion. But in reality, if you look at that period between 2011 and 2014, or uh, February 2014 when Yanukovych leaves, this was far from a period of smooth relations between uh, loyal client Yanukovych and the Russians. Yanukovych tried to put pressure on Russia to change the natural gas agreement, and Russia, Gazprom, did not want to do that. Um, so I think there's much to research about that period, much to look into in that period to understand all the complexities of the Russian-Ukrainian relationship. Um, I have not been able to do that fully, but I simply want to flag that there was much more there than that crosses the eye looking into that. And a lot of that had to do, in turn, with the effects of the 2010 um, energy negotiations with, with, with Russia. Thompson, yes, mm -hmm. nine and ten. Mm -hmm. uh, I would uh, like to go back to uh, one of the specifics that um, uh, your book um, attaches upon. So, uh, <clears throat> your book covers a vast geographical territory, and uh, this uh, question of energy supply uh, appears to uh, involve. So, in this chain, Russia is only a starting point for the energy supply, and you also d discuss in detail how the initial energy resource changes as it is transmitted, delivered to the destination country. So why is it important to consider this change? Uh, what does it add to the equation about how energy resources are involved in political decisions and pressures? Thank you for raising that because that's really um, very important. Um, um, two things immediately come to mind, and maybe others will. The first is that depending on what you need to do with the resource to get it to the final consumers, and whether you are simply, quote unquote, simply, 
transporting that resource to the final consumer or whether you need to do a lot of things in the middle, that changes the landscape of actors that are involved. Because if you're talking about, for example, about, about natural gas, which quote unquote only needs to be transited, you are talking about a certain type of players, let's say involved in transit in the pipeline, in keeping the pipeline at certain pressure and so on. But if you are talking about a type of energy that requires, for example, being refined to be of any use because nobody can do anything with crude oil, then you bring in other types of actors. Into, and those actors are going to play a very different role. They are not simply going to be actors looking over a transit process. They're going to be actors that are actively involved, for example, in refining. So that, that already makes a difference. But secondly, the differences in the quote-unquote original resource mean that they are very important technical requirements for what you need to do for that resource to be able to be sold, to be used by end consumers, to be safely marketed and sold. And those technical difference, differences are going to affect the entire process. Again, to take the, the simplest example, natural gas. It's a, an enterprise in managing pressure. Natural gas without pressure is nothing. And what this means is that you can do certain things, but there are other things you cannot do. Um, for example, when we talk about the way Ukraine finally was able to get some reverse natural gas supplies, this was possible because technically you cannot direct all the transit natural gas in one gigantic pipe. You need to have, you need to have nine. And that's how from one of those nine, you could take one to be reversed, for example. Or um, when you look at the technical sides of oil production and refining, you, do, you need to do certain things in natural gas at the beginning of the process right there and at the production point but in the case of oil you can do that almost everywhere so there you are able to when you when you can do refining almost anywhere you can bring in actors and interests at, at different points so i think at, even at those two levels that's already a huge difference and two more differences or two more reasons why that is important is because the characteristics of that original good will affect what you can and cannot do Political, what kind of pressure you're able to um, exert with that good. For example, with natural gas, yes, you, you can supposedly stop supplies, but you cannot stop production so easily. So that's a different kind of dynamic. Um, and finally, they also have differences for the way they can be used, not simply as means for external power or power tool, but the way they can be used to build uh, domestic power, the way they can be used by domestic players. And actually, that was the, the question that set me on the, on the journey towards this book. Uh, when I was presenting another book in, in Berlin in 2013, I believe, a German colleague asked me, do these differences between natural gas and oil, do they also matter domestically? And I thought, well, perhaps they matter, but I don't know. And 
doing the research for this book, I could find out that yes, they do matter. Because even because also domestic actors, not even domestic Ukrainian actors, for example, Slovak actors, uh, could do different things with natural gas or oil. So these are this this these differences impact actors at a variety of levels. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, at this point, I would like to go back to our Nord Stream um, conversation again uh, and uh, connect um, uh, this topic with uh, the European uh, territory again. Uh, so um, after this agreement was signed, many were saying that uh, Europe again um, showed that they are dependent on uh, Russian energy supply. Uh, is, that, is it so? Is it true that uh, European countries are actually dependent? Well, um, of course, this is different for for different countries, but in general, you, uh, with the, the European Union is receiving about 35% of its oil, 35% of its natural gas from Russia. Is that being overly dependent? Is that being just enough dependent? Um, I think to really understand the the issues here, we have to look not only at the percentages, but we have to look at whether... There are other sources that may be readily available if those supplies were not to be there. And of course, taking Ukraine basically out of the transit game means that there's less alternative supplies. But you also have to look at the interconnection between Western European companies and Russian companies. And here, I'm a little bit worried because if the, if the case of Nord Stream 2 is any example, the interest of those many Western European companies are very deeply, very deeply enmeshed with mm-hmm. Gazprom's interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not by chance. If you look at the way Gazprom um, organized the contracts with those countries in the consortium, for example, in the Nord Stream 2 consortium, uh, the conditions that have been given to these companies are very favorable. Even if many would argue that economically Nord Stream 2 doesn't really make sense, it makes sense economically for these companies. And that is something that even if it's not about direct economic, sorry, it's not about direct dependency on energy supplies, talks about a more general dependency, which is quite worrisome in my view. Mm-hmm. And are there any options for reducing this dependency? Well, um, one option is already being moved forward, which is, increased reliance on renewable resources. Mm -hmm. And if the latest European Union policy proposals are fully implemented, that will take, that would have an impact on the amount, the total amount of natural gas that will be used and in the amount that will be imported from Russia as well. I don't have the data with me here, I could look that up, Um, but certainly that that can be done. Um, Will there be the political will to fully do that is a little bit of a separate question. Because even the previous European Union plans to move towards renewable resources um, set out a few years ago were not fully implemented in part because of the emergency created by COVID, in part because of other reasons. So if there is the political will to do so, yes, there can be a move away from that dependency, but not simply to move to other suppliers, to suppliers, but to move to totally different forms of energy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this will depend not only on the issue of the geographic um, origin of those supplies, not only on the issue of 
the move to renewables per se, but on the issue of, of whether the entire transportation system can be moved to a system based on electricity, electric-driven motors and not fossil fuel internal combustion motors. And that is another area where there are very huge interest groups involved. If these interest groups find a niche in the new system, then that change has a possibility for success. If not, that's less likely. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, by the way, applies to Ukraine. Well, uh, thank you so much, Margarita. Thank you so much for your expertise and uh, thank you for this conversation. And again, congratulations on this uh, book, uh, which really complicates and problematizes the issue of energy. And I really uh, enjoy uh, reading it. And it really uh, shows how multi-layered and multi-dimensional, I would say, the issue about uh, energy is. Uh, it's not only about what energy we use, right? But uh, it's uh, also connected with... Um, a number of uh, political, economical, and uh, global strategic issues. Thank, thank you so much, Margarita. You're very welcome. And I have to say that you have been uh, a very careful reader. Your questions show uh, that you have done a great job uh, dealing with these questions and brought a lot of the other issues that are really, really important. So I, I really thank you. And I had a, a great time uh, discussing this with you. Thank you. Uh, today I spoke with Margarita Balmaseda, author of Russian Energy Chains, the remaking of technopolitics from Siberia to Ukraine to the European Union. The book was published by Columbia University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.